Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. I saw a lot of myself in her 40 years ago. And I still do. We're all struggling trying to figure out the world and our place in it. She's one of my perfect existential characters. A person left alone, feeling deeply betrayed by one loved one after another, confronting the very real possibility of imminent death. I was incredibly moved by her. I loved her. I still do. And feel deeply grateful that she was willing to talk to me. That was Errol Morris. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. So this is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and today on the podcast is Errol Morris. But before we get into it, I want to go back a few years. On the evening of November 8th, 2016, Donald Trump was elected our 45th president of the United States. One of the key reasons why Trump won in 2016 is because he hired a man named Steve Bannon, a founding member of Breitbart, who then became Trump's chief strategist a position that did not exist before the Trump presidency, although many things did not exist before the Trump presidency. No matter 
This is where Errol Morris enters the story. In the aftermath of Trump's win, Errol wanted to make a film about Bannon. He wanted to make a film about the alt-right and the rise of Trumpism. The result is a movie called American Dharma. It was made in 2017. It then played festivals throughout 2018 before finally securing distribution just a couple weeks ago. It is now currently at a theater near you, and here is a bit from the trailer. I was reading about Lucifer in Milton's Paradise Lost, and I have to say that Lucifer, for me, had certain Bannon-esque qualities. (laughs) Rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Love that line. A man who proudly promoted right-wing nationalism. Let them call you racist. Wear it as a badge of honor. This has never been done before. His extreme political agenda remains deeply troubling. We are in an outright war against Islamic fascism. Do you just want to destroy everything? The permanent political class that control our country is going to stay exactly like it is until you have true disruption. You need some killers. I foresaw someone like Trump coming along. This is not conservatism as we have known it. You're freaks and animals! The key was the comment section. The angry voices. White lives matter! Properly directed have latent political power. We will build a wall. The media can only handle, like, one thing at the time. If you're giving them five things a day... They go into sensory overload. Exactly. What the hell is going on? So this is war. It's absolutely war. We have no choice. Just like in 12 o'clock high. You're fighting for control of the greatest country in the world. We've got to fight. And some of us have got to die. But stop worrying about it. Consider yourselves already dead. There's a certain kind of meanness and racism at the heart of this. I completely totally disagree with that. Well, I the know same. you do. There's an inherent contradiction in the views that you hold. The way I've read... Hang on, hang on. Now you get me worked up. I don't think Trump's corrupt. WikiLeaks, I love WikiLeaks. That's what makes me think you're crazy. you possibly vote for Hillary Clinton? Because I was afraid of you guys. I still am. You may hate my guts, and you may hate what I stand for, but we're going to have a revolution in this country. It is coming as night follows day. Many critics have taken umbrage with how Morris portrays Bannon in the film. There is a particularly negative review in Variety in which Owen Gleiberman writes... On the rare occasions when Morris gets around to challenging Bannon, once every 20 minutes or so, Bannon ducks the question, and that's that. American Dharma isn't investigative filmmaking, it's a toothless bromance. There are plenty of reviews online and in print that echo similar concerns, although none contain the kind of pettiness and hostility that Gleiberman has seemed to master over the years. Here's the thing, though. I think American Dharma is very representative of the kind of film Errol Morris has been making since 1978 and Gates of Heaven. All you have to do is look at Fog of War with Robert McNamara and The Unknown Known with Donald Rumsfeld to understand what he is interested in as a filmmaker. He's always in a pursuit of truth, but I think more than that, if you really sit with his movies, he's interested 
in the basic underlining humanity of each of his subjects. Sometimes that's a murderer, sometimes that's a secretary of defense, sometimes it's a chief strategist, and then sometimes it's just a lady on her porch talking about mortality and her cat. What I know to be true, at least in this moment, is that for over 40 years, Errol Morris has been capturing all facets of American life. Aside from his boundless curiosity, he has truly some bizarre willingness to wade into the messiness of people. And I'm not exactly sure how someone arrives at being the kind of person that Errol is, but I do feel, at least personally, I feel grateful to live in a time where we can watch his movies, that he is still making movies. I do think he is that essential. So it was obviously a huge honor to have him on. Uh, This is one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done on this show. And so without further ado, here is Errol Morris. I have so many places to start with you. Really? Yeah. I hope they're nice places. They are nice places. And it's actually on the topic of of kindness that I want to start. You have been given so much shit recently. How how are you feeling? It's the Steve Bannon movie. It's really, every interview I read, they just keep attacking you in a way that I've not seen before. Really? Yeah. Was this news to you? News that I'm being attacked? No. No, it's not news. America's frightened. I like to think that the country is becoming marginally less frightened, but what do I know? So frightened that people can't even bear thinking about certain things. They react with anger. Uh, I believe there's an impulse to crawl under the bed and maybe... I don't know. When you crawl under the bed, do you suck your thumb? Is that what you do? Well, it's been um, 22 years since I've done anything like that. But I think so. Is that really true? I think after three, I stopped going under the bed. I think that was around then. And the thumb sucking? Well, you know, we're on a podcast. I I don't know if I can admit to those kind of things. You can trust me. Mm. You know, it's it's on the subject of trust. You, uh have a very interesting quote that I want to bring up early because I think it means something. You said, when I was away at school as a teenager in Vermont, my mother had come up to visit and we were talking. My classmates couldn't understand what we were saying. Not because of the Long Island accents, but because my mother was one of the most ironic people I've ever met. And I always thought my theory of language came from my mother, in good measure, that when someone says something, Sometimes they mean the opposite. There's something about language that really does fascinate me. You think it's a vehicle for communication, but it really isn't. It's a vehicle for obfuscation, elision, and confusion. So when you say, I can trust you, you understand why I may be skeptical. Indeed. What is that all about? My view of language? Yeah, and in relation to your mother. 
I had spent a lot of time in my 20s interviewing mass murderers. I've been told. It was the start of, I'm not sure if this is a career or not, but it was the start of my interviewing career such as it is. And my mother, who had a euphemistic style, said, I wish you would spend more time with people your own age. <laughs> and I said, but mom, the mass murderers are my own age. <laughs> um, language is interesting. It's interesting for how much it hides as well as how much it expresses. You know, this quote, it feels vaguely pessimistic to me. Why just vaguely? <laughs> I mean, are you really that skeptical of people's intentions and motivations in speaking? Probably I am. But that I don't think is so pessimistic. I would call it more realistic. Well, of course you would call it realistic. Well, don't say it that way. <laughs> Do I have to have a fit and walk off now? God, I would love that. No, no, I can't do that. No. I'm having a good time. Are you? I am. It's only going to get better. When I was interviewing mass murderers, I would sit and I would transcribe. They were all recorded interviews. I'd sit, transcribe the interviews, endlessly fascinated by... I don't know how to express this. Words on a page, how people express themselves. Mm. When you sit and transcribe interviews, it's a very odd experience because you yourself may have done the interview. You were sitting there. Supposedly you were listening to everything that was said. But the interviews become far more complex, far richer, far more complicated mm -hmm. when you sit and you transcribe them. And it made me think about language and about how people express themselves and what they hide at the same time that they may be expressing something. What do you think Steve Baden was hiding from you? There's a glib quality to almost everything he says. But for me, what's being hidden is that this is a totally confused ideology at best. At worst, it's deeply cynical, hypocritical, and frightening. If you listen, really listen to what he's saying, and I think it's important to listen to what he's saying, you're painted a picture of a guy who is the manipulator-in-chief who is this guy? Who is this guy who's preaching revolution? The champion of middle-class America. Wait a second. There's a guy, okay, who had middle-class origins. Richmond, Virginia. I guess the song of the South, if you like. But he goes to Harvard Business School. He works for Goldman Sachs. He comes to L.A., buys and sells motion picture companies. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, 
takes a lot of money from rabid right-wing billionaires. Man of the people. Maybe not so much. <laughs> so what the hell's going on here? Although you didn't, but I am often asked what I call the pie graph question. Pie graph question is what part is sincere, ingenuous, true belief? What part is snake oil salesman? What part is somebody just selling you a bill of goods in order to gain power? Mm. And gain power he did. Whether you like it or not, he was part of the Trump victory in 2016. I think he was much more than a part of it. Let's call it a big part of it. <laughs> Do you see parts of yourself in him? I hope not, but I see parts of myself in a lot of people. I'd like to think I am at least marginally less self-deceived than he is. Mm -hmm. But then self-deception seems to be part of all of us and is a central theme in every single movie that I've ever made. It's certainly a central theme in American Dharma. Here is a guy who sees himself as a hero, who sees himself as a champion of the little guy who really is not at all. He's something much, much closer to the opposite. My hope is America becomes less afraid. I know my own feelings when Trump won. I don't think people will ever forget where they were. People talk about where they were the day that JFK was assassinated. 9-11. 9-11. I don't think people will forget where they were the day that Trump was elected, 45th president of the United States. And to me, it was one of the darkest days in my life. A very, 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 how many varies can I do here? We'll just tack on a lot of them. As many as you need a very dark day. And the question remains, how in hell did this happen? And how do we, whoever we is in this context, prevent it from happening again? And let me assure the listener, it's not going to happen by ignoring it or pretending it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Because it did. Congratulations, America. It did. It may very well happen again. Please. Please have mercy. You promised to be nice. I'm going to be nice. This is the last thing I want to approach with Bannon because I want to move on from this movie as much as... I really? Think, I think it's a good film, but I, you have 70 years of life. What are we talking about? I can't spend the whole time talking about one movie. Yeah, you can. Well, I'm not going to. But on this... There's a recent quote you gave in The New Yorker. You were quoting Plato, and you said, No person doing evil thinks they're doing evil. First, they construe it as the good. I wanted to do a movie about Elizabeth Holmes, someone you've, again, been giving a lot of shit about, uh, right after the commercial. And I wanted to, even after she got into terrible trouble. Let me try to be clear about this, because I think it's a danger area. It's not that I wanted to become an apologist, Elizabeth Holmes. 
or was riddled with guilt for having done these commercials. No, it's because I became interested. Who is this woman? This, to me, I think sums up how and why you make movies. And I could be wrong, because we just met, but I think it does. And I also believe... How about this? I don't think you're wrong. I think you're right. Really? Yeah. God, I've been waiting for you to say that. But you know what they say about curiosity and the cat? I believe the story goes that curiosity did not inure to the benefit of the cat. Mm -hmm. But I am curious because there's a further question, which is, do you think you value your own curiosity above all else? No, but I do value it. Is that a fair answer? It's an incomplete answer. No, it's not incomplete. It's an answer. What's incomplete about it? There's more. What would you like me to have said? No, no, no. No, no, no. No, no, yes. no. That's not. I mean, you've done interviews for for 30-something years. More. Well, thir- 38? Is that what it is? I don't know what it is. It Whatever matter. it They're is. It's all numbers. I, but, you know, people have given you grief about the Elizabeth Holm thing and about Steve Bannon. Well, this is kind of crazy. I earn a living. You know about that. That you earn a living? No, earning a living. You know about that. Mm-hmm. Let's call it a concept. Uh, how do I earn a living? Uh, for years, I really couldn't earn a living or I didn't earn a very good living. I worked as a private detective. I worked as a door-to-door salesman. Various different jobs, different employment opportunities. And I started making movies. But in those days, very, very, very few people saw those movies, even though they were critically acclaimed. I had a friend in Roger Ebert who kept reviewing my movies and saying they were among the best movies ever made, but that didn't necessarily put food on the table. And then I discovered commercials, rah, 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 that I could be hired to direct commercials. And I liked doing it. I was good at doing it, and it provided, at a certain time in my life, a really desperately needed income. And I did commercials for everybody. I did commercials for Apple and Steve Jobs. I did commercials for various automobile companies. I think many of them are good. Well, that's nice of you to say. So do I. I turned down lots of commercials, but certain commercials where I knew somehow maybe I shouldn't be doing this. For example, I turned down doing commercials for the military because... I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to encourage some poor kid to get his face blown off in Iraq or Afghanistan. So I didn't do them. I said no. I was offered Juul commercials very recently. J U U L. And they offered <laughs> I like that you're spelling me, it for me. Yeah, because I say it and a lot of people don't hear it. So forgive me. I apologize for spelling it. J-U-U-L. You apologize and spell it again. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) And I'd like to apologize for spelling it again. And would you like to also spell it again? No, no, no. I think 
I think this has gone far enough. I thought the bit was good. So I said no, even though I was offered a lot of money because I knew enough about Jewel to know uh, this is something best not to get involved with. Mm -hmm. So years ago, not so many years ago, but years ago, I was offered to do commercials for a company that was in the news, Theranos. And what did I know about the company? This is not after Elizabeth Holmes had been exposed as a fraud. This is long before. I know this. But you brought up Theranos in the context of Bannon. So allow me to clarify that there's a major difference here. With Bannon, I knew that Bannon was hated by a lot of people, Mm -hmm. And I chose to make a movie about him, knowing full well that there was going to be trouble. And I can't pretend that somehow I am completely surprised that this was going to create trouble. Although I like to say I knew there was going to be a shitstorm. I had no idea there would be a shit hurricane. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Holmes was on the front cover of... Many, many, many business magazines, newspapers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I have a fear. Personally, I have a fear of needles. I don't like having my blood taken. In fact, I learned the term for it, eichmophobia. <laughs> please, please, do you really have to take my blood? It's going to hurt. I just don't like you doing that. There was something very appealing about this program. From a couple of drops of blood, you are able to do hundreds of different tests. If the question is, before I take a commercial, do I investigate the company that I'm doing the commercials for? The answer is no. I can't think of a single instance. Usually I know, don't do this. Mm -hmm. Or for example, BP came to me after the Gulf disaster, wanting me to do commercials. And I said, sure, I'll do commercials. If I can have Mel Gibson as a spokesperson, I want him on an offshore drilling rig, looking at the camera and saying, I know what it means to have a public relations disaster. They declined. Really? They didn't like that pitch? They didn't like that pitch. Go figure. (laughs) I liked it. There seems to be some part of you, and this goes back to you as a teenager and then in your early 20s. I mean, you go to Wisconsin, you graduate. You go to Princeton for graduate school. Then you go to Berkeley. And you have big ideological philosophical problems with these large institutions. And you get in trouble in these places, according to I you. don't know if I have ideological problems with these institutions, but yes, I do get into trouble in these places. What kind of trouble? Trouble that, as I see it, being a student, particularly being a graduate student, is often a bureaucratic issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Following this rule, that rule, doing what you're told, following orders. There's a military element, which I don't respond to very well. I think you could even go so far as to say I hate it. 
But you were asking me because you brought up Bannon and Elizabeth Holmes together, and you mentioned this quote from Plato, the Protagoras. No man consciously chooses to do evil. First, they construe it as the good. Do I believe that? I do. So there are two questions. There are a lot of questions, but let's just break it into two questions. The two questions is, why did I choose to do the commercials in the first place? I chose to do them because I was really sympathetic with the program of creating simple blood tests. Did I vet the company before agreeing to do the commercials? I didn't. But I didn't vet Apple. I didn't vet IBM. I didn't vet Chevrolet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then everything fell apart. I was no longer working for Theranos, but still am interested in Elizabeth Holmes. Mm -hmm. And to me, the question was not whether she did something bad. Of course she did something bad. She was selling blood tests that didn't work to the general public. Bad. Very bad. Very, very, very bad. Yes. But to me, that's where the questions begin, not where the questions end. Right. When someone does something very bad, what's going on in their head? Are they consciously aware of what they're doing? Are the delusional, self-deceived, what in hell actually is going on? And to me, that's the interesting question. You could say that it was the interesting question in Fog of War with Robert S. McNamara. It's the interesting question in The Unknown Known with Donald Rumsfeld. And it's the interesting question in American Dharma with Stephen K. Bannon. What's going on here? My guess, as America becomes a little bit less afraid, I'd like to see people, instead of being afraid of Trump, which they are, that they would more directly confront this. It's turning, clearly turning in America, where I believe the country is exhausted, horrified, the exhaustion and the horror is turning to a desire to do something about it, to confront it. If attacking me and my movie helps people to that end, mm -hmm. fine. Mm. But if we can go back to you leaving college, wanting to make movies, then being a, you know, a PI, where do you think this sort of inherent curiosity in people comes from for you? I don't know. Maybe everybody is the same, but everybody really isn't the same. There's this idea of truth, pursuit of truth. Did I always have it? I think I did have it in some form or another. I remember, and I sometimes use this as an example, I wrote a book called The Ashtray, and in The Ashtray I do, in fact, use this as an example. I got into a bet with kids who lived in the neighborhood. It's something I learned from my brother, my older brother, six years older than myself, Noel, who was quite brilliant. And he passed away at 40. And he passed away at 40, yes. 
a computer scientist before people were computer scientists. But you're supposed to ask people, which is further west, Los Angeles or Reno, Nevada? Is there a wrong answer? <laughs> yes, indeed. There is a, a correct answer and an incorrect answer. So now the current thought is, well, everybody's right. It's just a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, no. It's not a different way of thinking. Reno is further west than Los Angeles. So I made this bet for a dollar with this kid. And he said, Los Angeles. I said, no, Reno. So I went and I got my Rand McNally's Atlas of the World and opened to the appropriate page. Mm -hmm. And clearly, Reno is further west than Los Angeles. There is a fact of the matter. If you want to say, is it true that Reno is further west than Los Angeles? Yes, it's true. So the kid said to me, well, lines of longitude don't cross the water. I guess they end at the coast. I say, no, they don't. That's wrong. The argument went on and on and on. He refused to pay me my dollar. And what was the lesson that I took away from all of this is that you can be right, but unless you're bigger than that person, <laughs> you're not going to get your dollar. The dollar is not going to be forthcoming. But even in that, there's an obsession, a very, very simple but very powerful obsession with truth, that there's a world out there. And in that world, things have happened or they haven't happened. And it's our job to figure out, wherever it's possible, what's true and what's false. If this sounds hopelessly pedantic, maybe it is. But these are the kinds of questions that have endlessly fascinated me in the Thin Blue Line, which involved the shooting of a police officer in Dallas. There's a question you have to answer. A car traveling down this lonely road in West Dallas, cold, very cold night in late autumn. The police stop a car traveling without headlights. Officer walks up to the driver's side of the vehicle and is shot multiple times. Okay? Car speeds off into the night. A drifter is arrested tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in the Texas electric chair. I enter this story years after the fact. I start investigating, and it becomes, after a year of investigation, they convicted the wrong man. The chief prosecution witness was the real killer. This is not up for grabs. There was a car on that roadway. There was someone seated in the driver's seat driving that car. That driver pulled a gun out and shot this police officer. A fact of the matter, a real world in which things happen or don't happen. And what's my job? My job is to figure it out, to figure out what actually did happen on that roadway. Yeah. What is it in the 
my makeup that would make me want to answer that kind of question? How the hell do I know? <laughs> All I know is that I felt absolutely compelled to answer it. Mm. Can we watch something for a second? What if I said no? Well, too bad. <laughs> Skippy's been dead quite a while, two, three years. You know. Yeah. I don't want to think about it. One of my very, very favorite scenes I've ever put on film. You know, you miss your pets just like you do any of the family. And I don't know what happened to this last little kitty was here. All the cats have gone. There's no cats around her, no animals, no nothing. I miss that little black kitten so much. It was wonderful. And all of a sudden, boom, no animals around. Somebody in the neighborhood or something is doing away with them. This is a clip from Gates of Heaven with Florence Rasmussen. It's from my first film. It's your first recorded interview on film. Yes. And it was also at the very, very beginning of my work on Gates of Heaven. Day two. I had no idea. I probably still have no idea what I'm doing. But then I really had no idea what I was doing, except a kind of odd persnickety-ness about what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. A hatred of standard documentary, which kind of persists to this day. A desire to let people speak without interrupting them. I had a fight with the camera woman and the sound recordist because when I first met Florence, she was sitting in her car with a nurse's aide watching this pet cemetery. This was about two pet cemeteries, a pet cemetery that was going out of business. The pets were to be exhumed, moved in refrigerator trucks to a very successful pet cemetery north of San Francisco, Napa. She was there in the car and set up the camera. And Florence at one point said, here today, gone tomorrow. And the sound recordist interrupted her and said, she said, here today, gone tomorrow, right? And she said, no, wrong. That was the end of both of them. I decided to replace both of them when I started shooting again. And I often thought, what irritated me more? Here today, gone tomorrow, right. The evanescence of everything, the limited duration of human existence, a kind of existential sadness. I did not want to hear her corrected. Was I more annoyed that she had been interrupted? That was plenty annoying. Or was I more annoyed that here today, gone tomorrow, not wrong, right? Very much right. Well, that was the beginning of it. I kept firing people because this persists, actually. I'm quite amazed. It persists throughout my career. 
people think they have a better idea of how to do things than I do. Well, wait a second. I'm the director. No? Don't I get certain prerogatives as such? Like the decision of how to make the damn movie? <laughs> yeah, that never ends. There's always a struggle. At least there's a struggle for me. If you want to do things differently, if you want to create something that hasn't been seen before, there are always going to be people telling you you're doing it the wrong way. American Dharma is a great example of this sort of thing. I showed this. It's called the Neiman Fellows as a fellowship at Harvard. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I call it the junior college, Harvard. It's about a mile down the street. The Neiman Fellowship offers fellowships to reporters around the country. They can come to Harvard, study whatever they want for a year, two years. So American Dharma was shown to the Neiman Fellows. Maybe this is too much of a backstory. Forgive me. One of the fellows said, now, you know, you know, that's not the correct way to interview Stephen Bannon. No, I don't know. There is no correct way to interview anybody. It's what stands behind the interview, which is at issue. Uh, the desire to find things out, the desire to learn something you don't know, the desire to explore an issue in a way that perhaps it hasn't been explored before. And to me, the use of movies in American Dharma, movies selected by Steve Bannon, was a way into his brain, a way to examine his thinking. And I would have to say, if you would ask me prior to making this film, are movies a Rorschach test? <laughs> Is it like looking at some infernal ink blot? And I would have to say yes, because we would look at the same movie and we would see radically different things. Mm. Well, what I see in this and what I keep coming back to this morning rewatching the movie is part of her monologue, which Roger Ebert called something that Faulkner wished he could have wrote in his initial review in 78. God, I haven't read it for it's wonderful years. It's really great. Um, she says... I've been through so much, I don't know how I'm staying alive. Really, I have for my age. If you're young, it's different, but I've always said I'm never going to grow old. I've always had that. And people that I tell how old I am, they don't believe me. Because people my age as a rule don't get around like I do. You did this interview when you were 29, 30. Yes. It's been 41 years you are 71 now. Yes. Do you see some of yourself in her at this point in your life? I saw a lot of myself in her 40 years ago, and I still do. We're all struggling trying to figure out the world and our place in it. She's one of my perfect existential characters, a person left alone feeling deeply betrayed by one loved one after another, confronting the very real possibility of imminent death, 
I was incredibly moved by her. I loved her. I still do and feel deeply grateful that she was willing to talk to me. I feel that in this interview, I call it the shut the fuck up school of interviewing. You let people talk. You don't interrupt them. You encourage them. I did a piece, I don't know if you saw it, in the airmail, which is Graydon Carter's new publication on interviewing, on the nature of interviewing. You're there to encourage people to tell you something. You're not there to create an adversary. You're not there to ask adversarial questions, although people like to think that's the purpose of interviewing. I don't know what purpose interviewing has, but I do know that the interviews that I like to do are very, very, very different in character. You want to hear something. You want to create a place where people feel free to talk to you and to express something that they may not have expressed before. The whole idea of American Dharma, and I know you'll yell at me because I'm supposed to stay away from that damn movie, but the whole idea of American Dharma was, what's Bannon's favorite movie? I'm told by Joshua Green, who wrote this book about Bannon called The Devil's Disciple. I had read it just before doing my first interview with Stephen Bannon. His favorite movie is 12 O'Clock High. 1949, Gregory Peck's finest performance in my maybe not so humble view, better than To Kill a Mockingbird. Kind of amazing. What's it about? Okay. America, memory serves me correctly, has won this war against the Axis powers, against Japan, against Nazi Germany. And it's a story of the fighters in planes sent out over the Third Reich to almost certain death in an effort to win that war. Uh, Gregory Peck delivers this speech to the aviators in this Quonset hut saying, consider yourself already dead. You go out there and you do your duty. You die if necessary, but you win. You win against all odds and at all costs. Well, that's great if you're fighting World War II. I suppose, I remember when I first saw the film, I asked myself, couldn't this be a movie for Nazi Germany? What makes this an American movie, aside from the fact that it has Gregory Peck in it? Someone said to me, you know, I like American Dharma so much less than your other movies because it's so unironic. There's no irony in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I said, huh? What are you talking about? You see nothing ironic in the fact that Bannon uses as his central image Gregory Peck in 12 O'Clock High, a war to fight fascism. In 2016, it becomes a war, correct me if I'm wrong, to promote fascism. Bannon has these speeches, and 
we should all pay attention. This is shortly after the Axis Hollywood tape becomes public. Everybody thinks Trump is done for. That's the end of it. Thank God we don't have to hear from him ever again. Bannon makes a speech. They're on their way to the second debate in St. Louis. He makes a speech. You're either on the plane. This is the campaign plane. You're either on the plane or you're off the campaign. You make this decision now. Consider yourself already dead. We're going to fight this out to the bitter end. Hmm. It's almost beyond belief it's so crazy. Because what are you fighting for here? You're fighting to win, to elect a president who quite possibly is ill-equipped to do the job, deeply immoral, mentally challenged, possibly even insane. This is the victory that you are going to work for at all costs. It is so deeply nihilistic and so disturbing, so crazy. If I have an opportunity to wag my finger, so let me just wag my finger so I can get in practice at you. Wagging my finger at America. Don't ignore this. Don't be silly. Don't be foolish. This is real. And this is really, really scary, but not so scary that you need to stick your head in a hole in the ground and pretend it isn't happening, because it is. It really is. I read review after review of American Dharma. And okay, I'm not supposed to talk about it, and I'm breaking the rules of the podcast, and I'll probably be very very severely punished and reprimanded. I'll do it anyway. My rules? Oh, you told me not to talk about it. What do you think me reprimanding you looks like, by the way? It looks Don't like... Don't answer that. Go ahead. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What do I think it looks like? It looks... Errol, there are no rules. They're all rules. Oh, I was giving you some shit. Relax. There was no rules. You can talk about whatever you like. In fact, you have. When I was down in Vernon, Florida, making my film Vernon, Florida, there was a character who I adored, Albert Bitterling. I used to call him the epistemologist in the swamp. And it's not in the movie, but he took me aside one day and said, you know, Errol, you don't break the rules. The rules break you. You've said that many times. But and I know he was quote. right. It's true. He was right. So have my non-existent Rules broken you? No. Okay. I don't think so. I hope not. So you read the reviews. Go ahead. It was almost as if... Why am I saying almost as if? I don't know. Why qualify it? I don't know what you're doing. Um, The movies were there as a kind of mood setting of some kind, that they had no real content in terms of the movie as a whole, Mm. but they do. Movies as a Rorschach test, movies as a way into Bannon's brain. And what is that brain? It's an equivocal, nasty brain that has found a way to justify anything and everything, no matter how immoral, no matter how depraved, no matter how hypocritical that behavior might be. That some viewers don't notice it, 
I'm sorry. Mm. Very, very sorry. But it's there if you pay attention. If he looks at a movie and says it's all dharma, duty, destiny, what is he telling us? He's telling us there is no morality. There is no right and wrong. You just go out and you do it. And to make it worse, 12 o'clock high was assigned to his class first week at Harvard Business School. I guess you maximize shareholder value, and then you go and beat the enemy, whatever the enemy, whoever the enemy is, with a board. Mm. You win. Who the fuck cares whether it's right or wrong? After all, it's duty, it's destiny, it's dharma. I would say this is the craziest, most ironic movie I have ever made. It's a portrait of self-deception, delusion, and insanity. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It's affected not just me sitting in a studio with this guy. It's affected this country. So what are we going to do about it? Well, in this moment, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. Uh-oh. And then we have to carry on with our days. But I'd like to look at one of your movies for a second. In a brief history of time, it was part of a scene and a line that was cut from the film. It's one of your favorite lines that was in the film, but then was taken out. It's from a psychiatrist, part of the uh, Stephen Hawking family. And she said, it's always about time, isn't it? You said in an interview in 2017 that you're someone who regrets almost everything. I think you were making a joke, but you may also have been telling the truth. The two are not incompatible. As is evidenced by your body of work and this interview. What is everything to you right now? There's a crazy hope embodied in a lot of what I do. Maybe it's that we come to understand things a little bit better. I'm not even really sure. Why make a movie like American Dharma? Why make any movie for that matter? Hopefully to capture something about myself, about how I see the world, about what frightens me, about what I may still be hopeful about, even though I'm not sure I believe in hope. I'm only human and... I have that same nasty tendency as the rest of my species. I think you believe in hope, by the way. I think you're just giving yourself an out. You know the famous Kafka quote. I think you're about to tell me. Franz is having a conversation with his close friend, closest friend, Max Broad. And Max asks Franz, Franz, surely you believe in hope? And Franz says, yes, of course. Just not for us. Is that where you're at, at 71? I'd like the world to be a better place. When I made American Dharma, probably making any of the films that I've made over the years, the hope is that they can do some good. One of the horrors of making this particular film, although I've encountered criticism many, many, many times before was the real hope that I could weigh in on what's happening in this country. 
to try to understand it. It is one of the great mysteries for me, not just how Trump got elected. That's a mystery, although I think I understand it much better having made this film. But how he stays more or less in power with a significant number of people who support him. That is a mystery, perhaps even a greater mystery than his election. There's this principle of cognitive dissonance, Leon Festinger. The way I always think about it is you're trying to make a decision. Should I buy the Lincoln Town car or the Escalade? You're in a quandary. You have drawn a line down the center of the page, and on the left side, you enumerate all of the benefits of buying the Escalade. And the other, the benefits of buying the Lincoln Town Car. Maybe you have a second page with all of the detriments of doing the same. You're agonizing. Lincoln Town Car, Escalade, Escalade, Lincoln Town Car, Lincoln Town Car, Escalade, Escalade, Lincoln Town Car. But eventually, you make a decision. You decide for the Escalade. I think I would go with the Lincoln Town Car, but let's just say, for the sake of argument, you go with the Escalade. Having made that decision, you will then, almost to the death, defend that choice, having made it. I made that choice. It was the right choice. I'm going to defend that choice. The Escalade is truly, truly a remarkable vehicle. I'm so glad I bought it. I'd buy it again. Could that be it? I voted for this guy, having made the decision. You'll have to kill me before I'll say it was the wrong decision. Go ahead, kill me. It was the right decision. Fuck you. I uh, was offered, when the entire economy was falling apart at the end of the Bush administration, I think we remember this, uh, GM came to me and wanted me to do a set of commercials, but they said they didn't have any money. GM was on the verge of going under. Would I accept payment at a later date? That never, ever happens in commercials. Why do you do commercials? You do commercials because people pay you right away. You don't have to wait. You don't have to beg for your money. They just give it to you. Okay? So we can't pay you right away. We're going to have to wait. Well, I suggested perhaps I could take payment of 100 Escalades. I had this fantasy that I would be cruising around in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with a convoy of a hundred Escalades, jamming traffic, preventing anybody from going anywhere ever again. There would just be me and my hundred Escalades. But they weren't interested. So I have to continue on with my Volvo. <laughs> All that for one punchline. Jesus. I know. It's pathetic. No, I don't think you're pathetic. No, but the punchline could be pathetic, and the joke itself could be pathetic. I thought it was quite good. I think you're just hard on yourself. Oh, God, help me. Okay. You know, I think this actually does tie into you defending your choice to become a filmmaker, because your mother wanted you to be a doctor, mm -hmm. like your father. 
And when she confronted you about this, you would often say, I don't want to be a doctor and like my father. I don't know my father. My father died when I was two years old. Right. I'd like to be like you. I'd like to be an artist. My mother was and still is my hero. You then also added, I always think that if I could live up to who my mother was, then I would have done something. I still feel that way. Do you think you have lived up to who your mother was? I think I've had an easier time of it than my mother. My mother was one of the best educated people I have ever met. She had a graduate degree from the Juilliard. She was an extraordinary pianist, really an extraordinary pianist. She was getting a Ph.D. in French literature from Columbia. My mother was a really accomplished and brilliant woman with two children, and her husband dropped dead of a massive heart attack, leaving her with very little insurance money and the necessity of bringing up a family, which she did. A remarkable woman and a remarkably kind woman. I don't think I'm the easiest person <laughs> in the world, nor do I believe my brother was the easiest person in the world. But whatever we became, whoever we are or were, it's really in good measure because of her, her love, her dedication, her hard work, her courage. Would I like to be like her? You betcha. And do you think you are? I don't know. I hope I am a little bit. Mm. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to listen to a song together for a second before we leave. Sure. I think Tim has it for us.
So Czerny was a contemporary of Beethoven, and you mentioned it because I wrote about my mother. Um, my mother never became a concert pianist, although she had the technique of a concert pianist. She was the best sight reader that I ever met. She could play almost anything at sight. An ordinary pianist could play with enormous practice. But she said she never had a really good memory. There are people who have such remarkable memories for music. My mother was not one of them. I'm not one of them. And in the last weeks, years, but most acutely in the last weeks of her life, she had severe macular degeneration. Her eyesight was failing her. In order to be a really effective sight reader, you have to have really effective eyesight. And so all that was left with her near the very, very end of her life are the exercises that she did. Um, Cerny, I believe, she knew by heart because she had played it so many, 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 many times. And I remember her at the piano the day that she died playing Cerny. Yeah, there'll never be anybody like my mom. Well, for what it's worth, you know, stranger to mostly stranger, I don't think there's anyone else like you. Well, it's a nice thing to say, if it is a compliment. It is. And uh, I really do thank you for coming by and talking with me. A pleasure. Errol Morris. I hope I haven't been too confrontational. No, just enough. So long. Thank you. our show. Special thanks this week to Skip Skinner and Sophia Lepore. If you'd like to check out Errol's new film, American Dharma, it is currently available in theaters across the country. If you'd like to learn more about Errol, you can do so in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. There on the site, you'll find a back catalog of episodes with a bunch of directors I think you may like, including Werner Herzog, Kenneth Branagh, Bill and Turner Ross, Chloe Zhao, Alma Haral, Janixa Bravo, and many, many more. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And this show, Talk Easy, is available to stream on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, this show would not be possible without our team. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, design by Ian Chang, graphics by Ian Jones. 
Social media by Nikki Spina. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our editor is Andre Lin. Our engineer is Tim Moore. And we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. And, of course, our show is produced by the inimitable Caroline Raybuck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you back here next Sunday with Tracy Letts. Until then, have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.